your way in this place, that we wouldn't bring our own agendas, that if we have them, that we would lay them aside and allow you to speak, to move, even as we fellowship and talk with one another, as we worship, as we listen, as we pray. God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be guiding us, that you would be accomplishing what you want to do this morning. We're here for you. Amen. Let's sing. Sing. 
to this call to worship from Psalm chapter 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like a precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
these words are true and maybe we don't feel them right now but I promise you even if you don't feel it and you don't see it and it feels hopeless right now that these words that we're about to sing is true that he he is coming after you and, and he's not going to stop he's going to keep pursuing you because that's the reckless love of God that he leaves the 99 for the one and I want us to just acknowledge that you know it's okay if you don't want to sing these words, if you don't feel like they're true, but just let us sing it over you, that these words are true, that God loves you, that he's not going to give up on you, and he's going to keep coming.
Thank you, Jesus. God, we just thank you for your reckless love that never fails to meet us where we are. God, this morning, I pray that we would be so aware of your presence in this place and that your presence is a peaceful, humble presence, but it's also overwhelming. God, I just pray that we would recognize that you are in our midst and that you invite us to experience your love, your goodness. You invite us to experience your mercy. God, I pray that each person in this room, God, no matter who they are, where they've come from, what they've done, God, I pray that each person in this room would feel your presence and your love. God, I pray that it would pierce their heart. I pray that they wouldn't be able to deny it. I pray that they wouldn't question it, but that they would openly receive your love, your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace, and salvation. God, we open ourselves up to you. God, may we be a holy, humble, united body that is open to you. God, we recognize, we recognize that the world needs to see your light and experience your light and love. And God, this morning, we remember once again that we are to carry that light and that love out into the world. God, my prayer is that our light would not be dim. But God, I pray that our light would shine brightly, reflecting the loving presence of King Jesus, inviting the world to participate, to receive. God, this morning, we repent for the ways in which we have failed. We recognize, God, that we have failed at times to be the loving light that the world needs. And so, God, we repent and we ask you, God, to guide us and direct us once again. God, may we experience the joy of being in your presence. And I pray that in our conversations and engagements with one another, that that joy would be present, that that joy would be felt and seen on our faces. God, we are your people, and we are called to be holy and blameless, meaning fully open and surrendered to you, transformed by your love and your mercy and your grace. God, may this truth be evident in us only through the transforming power and work of your Holy Spirit. May it be so with us, Lord Jesus. God, we love you, and we pray all of this in the name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, at this time, I am going to invite 
the Fuller family and the family that is with them to come and join me. I'm going to come down here, and we'll have Jeremy and Jennifer stand in the center here. And parents, you guys will go ahead and gather. And little Rebecca, yeah, you get to be front and center with brother. All right. Well, friends, this morning we are celebrating the dedication of this sweet baby boy, Nathan. We are gathered here to celebrate his life and to recognize that the dedication of a child is a sacred occasion for the church. In this ritual, we express the covenantal reality that this child is a gift from God, and we anticipate the provenient grace of God in light of the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. This morning, we rightfully recall the words of Jesus in Matthew 19. Then the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to these, right? The kingdom of heaven. Rebecca knows that and I never have a doubt about it. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Jeremy and Jennifer, the presentation of your child, Nathan, for dedication is much more than a formality and a ritual for you. This is the culmination of years of prayer and anticipation. Your son is an acknowledged gift of God to you, and you take that gift seriously. You have desired that today would be an opportunity for you to publicly affirm your gratitude for God to God for entrusting this child to your care. In presenting Nathan for dedication, you have expressed your desire that he be nurtured in the faith, that he be taught to be responsive to the grace of God, that he come to have a dynamic and personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that his life would be lived in obedient service to Christ. In order that this outcome may be possible, it will be your duty as parents to carefully direct his mind to the scriptures in discipleship, to mold his life by example, to teach him to value the disciplines of holy living, of godly attitudes, and wholesome relationships. You should teach him also to delight in the love and tenderness of God. He will need to be nurtured toward a level of trust and confidence that he will come, that will come only as you demonstrate these characteristics yourselves. Jeremy and Jennifer, it's appropriate this morning that we recall the words of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I prayed for this child. And the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. Jeremy and Jennifer, will you seek God's grace and direction as you lovingly guide Nathan, discipling him and teaching him to follow Jesus, living this holy example yourselves? If so, answer, we will. To the families that are here today, you have heard the testimony and commitment of Jeremy and Jennifer. I ask you to affirm your prayerful support for them and for their son, Nathan, 
will each of you seek to support and encourage these parents in their duties and responsibilities? And will you nurture Nathan by godly example and prayer? If so, answer, I will. I now ask you, the congregation, will you commit yourselves as the body of Christ to support and encourage these parents as they endeavor to fulfill their responsibilities to this child and to assist by nurturing his growth toward spiritual maturity? Will you covenant to pray for them and to so live before them and with them that the grace of God will enfold them through you and that the power of the Holy Spirit will enable Jeremy and Jennifer to fulfill their duties as parents for their son, Nathan? If so, answer, we will. We will. And to Nathan, let me see if I can hold him and read at the same time. Little baby Nathan, here, we're going to do this. We're going to turn him toward everybody so everybody can see this sweet boy. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Thank you. Nathan, you are a precious gift from God to your parents. They are now bringing you back to him as a gift of love from them. And now with your parents and in the presence of the congregation, We dedicate you to God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Would you all join me in prayer this morning? Our our loving Heavenly Father, this sacred moment is filled with the glory of your presence. We lift our voices in praise for this gracious gift in the life of Nathan to Jeremy and Jennifer And we humbly pray that you will take this child into your loving care. I pray for your wisdom, your protection, your guidance, and your delight in this child. Lord, be with Jeremy and Jennifer and their families. May they be wholly committed to knowing and doing your will in their lives so that this child of theirs will always have a godly example to follow. May their home be open to the needy of the world so that their son may learn the joy of serving others. And may their hearts be tender to the lost of the world so that he may know the joy of leading others to know you. We pray this in in confidence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. This is a precious, precious gift. Can we celebrate together this morning? (laughs) I'm going to present this certificate to you all so that you remember this day (laughs) and that big smile. Wow, that was probably the smoothest baby dedication I've ever seen. That perfect angel. Thank you all for being here, for joining us this morning. You guys may be seated. Amen. That is a true celebration, right? What a beautiful day in the house of the Lord. Well, this morning we are in week two of a new sermon series 
If you missed last week, no worries. You are just <laughs> you are here just in time where I can catch you up and you'll be completely caught up in 6 weeks. I can't say the same thing, but last week we began a new series in the Gospel of Luke. And it was a little messy last week, I confess, as I tried to lay the groundwork of of kind of the whole gospel, as I tried to set the context for what we were going to be dealing with throughout the gospel, but also as we paused and looked at the story in Luke chapter 5 of the paralytic, the paralyzed man who was brought to the feet of Jesus by his friends, lowered in through a roof because they couldn't get to Jesus. I won't rehash all of that, but one of the things that I shared last week is that this story in Luke chapter 5 kind of sets up a tension that we will continue to see throughout the rest of the book between Jesus and the religious leaders, and it also highlights for us those who Jesus draws near to, those, those to whom Jesus extends his mercy and love and grace, and it's those who come humbly before him, open to his love and to his guidance and to his teaching. I also mentioned last week that one of my favorite details about the whole gospel of Luke is is this special attention that Luke gives to the outsiders, if you will, to the outsiders, to society's misfits, to society's outcasts, to those who are pushed to the margins and and who who remain on the margins, that Luke draws attention time and time again to the fact that Jesus goes out of his way to bring those on the outside in. He goes out of his way to welcome them, reminding them that theirs is the kingdom of God. And so this is a theme we're going to see in Luke over and over again. One of the things that we're going to notice is that, you know, yesterday I tried to, or yesterday, last week, I tried to extend grace to the Pharisees. I always try to give them grace because we don't want to demonize them. They didn't go out of their way to cause harm and trouble to the least of these, to the outsiders. They didn't go out of their way to mistreat them. In fact, I am fully confident that they went out of their way at times to support them financially, that they would, maybe they didn't go too far out of their way, but that they would show them in their minds care. But we also recognize we can't deny the fact that they didn't go out of their way to welcome in those outsiders, to make space for them, to make room for them, right? And, and, and we saw that last week in the story of the man, the paralyzed man. Even though he was a Jewish man and wouldn't have been considered an outsider because of, of his ethnicity, but he was paralyzed. And so that kind of kept him on the outside of the Jewish community because it kept him from being able to fully participate in the life of the worship community. And so while the Pharisees might not go out of their way to include the outsiders, Jesus does. And he does again and again and again. So this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. And and just to kind of fill in the gaps from Luke chapter 5 to chapter 7, in case you're confused as to why I'm leaving certain passages out, a lot of these are passages that that we've looked at recently. For instance, uh, I I recalled last summer when when we looked at Luke chapter 5, when Jesus calls Levi, the tax collector, we know him as Matthew, right? When Jesus calls him to be a disciple, a follower, and Matthew was a, a tax collector for the Roman government, so he would have been considered an enemy, an outsider. And he's so overjoyed to be invited to follow Jesus that he throws a party at his house for Jesus and the other disciples. And Jesus goes,
goes. And this really is a defining moment for Jesus' ministry because he is totally criticized and raked over the coals for going to this dinner and fellowshipping with other evil tax collectors and sinners, right? And we, we are fully confident that Jesus wouldn't have participated in the sinfulness, whatever was taking place there that was not good and holy and pleasing to God, we are confident that Jesus did not participate, but it also didn't keep him from being there and spending time with those who, again, would not have been welcomed otherwise. And so we have that sort of defining moment. Uh, We have this time and time again, Jesus is just causing trouble. Everywhere he turns, he's offending the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They're, They're asking him, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Clearly they're not fasting and that's something they should be doing. He's criticized for allowing his disciples to pick wheat on the Sabbath so that their bellies can be full, right? The nerve, Jesus feeding his disciples, He's criticized for healing on the Sabbath, for meeting needs on the Sabbath. And then in Luke chapter 6, you have the full list of disciples, and you have Luke's kind of version of the Sermon on the Mount, which he calls the Sermon on the Plain. And if you recall, we actually walked through the Sermon on the Mount through the season of Lent. Um, But it's important to note that all of this takes place after that pivotal moment In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, as you know, has just outlined, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to be my disciple. These are those who belong in the kingdom of heaven. I'm here for them, right? That's all lined out in this sermon, and so it's important to keep that in mind. And so this morning, if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand to read from Luke chapter 7, We're reading verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This, friends, is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I just want to simply kind of set up how we're going to flow through this message. 
What we're going to do first is we're going to, to really uh, zone in on the centurion's faith and just really what it looks like for him to demonstrate such a faith in Jesus. And then we're going to look at how this faith moved Jesus to respond and kind of what Jesus' response was. We're going to kind of break that down. And then we will end, as we typically do, with our response, with an invitation for us to respond as we are challenged by this message and this word in the Gospel of Luke. Here's what I want you to understand about this centurion as we kind of break down his faith and and what exactly this means and and what it looks like for a, a centurion to place faith in Jesus in this way. So this man, as we've said already many times, he was a centurion, but first we ought to recognize he was a Gentile. Right? He was a Gentile. He did not belong to the Jewish community. He was not born into the Jewish community, and so he was an outsider. Automatically, right out of the gate, he's an outsider. He's a Gentile. He would have been considered unclean by the Jewish people, by the people of God. He would have been automatically assumed to be godless because Gentiles were godless people. They didn't follow the ways of God. And he really, by many, would have been considered an enemy. But it gets even better or worse, depending on how you look at it, because he was not only a Gentile, he was a Roman centurion. He was a part of the oppressive, evil Roman government. He was considered a major political enemy to the people of Israel, right? And so alone from the fact that he was a Gentile, he would have been considered a a huge enemy because he was a Roman centurion. By all accounts, this man was the very definition of an outsider. And this is an important moment in the Gospel of Luke because it's the first time that we see Jesus draw near to that of an actual outsider because of one's ethnicity, because he was a Gentile. This is the first time in Luke's Gospel where we see Jesus respond to a Gentile. We see with the paralytic from last week, I'm pretty sure that it's assumed that he was a Jewish man. He was simply considered an outsider because of his uh, disabilities and wasn't able to fully participate in the community of Israel. But this was a Gentile, and so this is an important moment. We ought to pay attention to this moment. And, and so again, we're reminded of this theme throughout the book of Luke, that he pays attention to the Gentile people that Jesus interacts with. And, and we're also, we recall this morning, I want to draw your attention back to Luke chapter 2. You don't necessarily have to go there, but I just want to remind you of Luke chapter 2. And there's this beautiful moment when baby Jesus... It's pretty fitting that this falls on a baby dedication Sunday, right? Baby Jesus is brought to the temple by his parents, by Mary and Joseph, and there they run into Simeon. And Luke tells us that Simeon was a righteous and devout man and that he had been anxiously waiting to see the birth of the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 2, he recalls, Simeon's words when he sees baby Jesus. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light to the Gentiles, a revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Luke, from from the get-go, 
right? He points the attention to the fact that Jesus is going to intentionally move toward the outsiders, toward the Gentiles. And so I just love that we see this theme time and time again in the book of Luke. Now, one of the things that I really wrestled with this week as I was reading and studying, I was really trying to find like a clear answer as to whether or not this Roman centurion was a full-on convert because it doesn't really say that he was a, a Jewish convert necessarily, but we do see that he had a high regard for the Jewish people, that he had a high regard and utmost respect for God. He, he seemed to fear God and understand, I mean, he built the Jewish people a synagogue, right? That's what we read. This man is worthy because he built us a synagogue. Roman, Roman officials don't just go around doing that for no reason. And so it, is, it seems to me that whether or not he was a full convert, he had a high regard for the Jewish community and, and ultimately utmost respect for God. And so when he hears Jesus is, is near, he's probably heard about Jesus and heard about what he's done. When he finds out that Jesus is going to be near, we see what seems like a desperation, right? And it's almost like he's sitting in this tension of, well, I know that I am not a Jewish man, and I know that really Jesus should not be in my presence because I would be considered unclean, but also I'm desperate, I'm desperate for the healing of my servant, and it would seem that he has a high regard for his servant, that he loves and cares for his servant and is desperate for him to be healed. And so it's almost like he's asking Jesus, would you just make an exception just this one time? Would you just reach out, reach past those boundary lines just one time? And then as we read <laughs> through the rest of the story, it's as if he at some point has this moment where he's like, you know what? You don't even have to come into my house. You don't even have to come to my house, Jesus. I know that you can heal this servant. You can heal my servant from where you are. I don't wish to offend you. I don't wish to make you do something that, you're, that you shouldn't, that you have a conviction, right? And so would you just stay where you are? I trust that you can do it from where you are. You don't even have to come into my home. And just think about that for a moment. Think about the significance of that for a moment. This is a Roman official, right? And when you read of and when you think of Roman officials, you immediately are reminded of the power that they hold. You're immediately reminded that they lord power over those who are beneath them, those who are weaker than them. Right? And so for, the, for this Roman centurion to, to take this humble disposition before Jesus and to say, you know what, you don't even have to. You could just stay right where you are. I don't wish to offend you. He could have lorded over with his power and he could have wielded his power to try to get Jesus to do something for him. But instead, he demonstrates incredible faith and humility saying, Jesus, I know you can do this from where you are, rather than risking offense by having Jesus come into his home. So that's what we're dealing with this morning. That's the kind of man that is coming before Jesus. And so then we have Jesus' response, right? You read through this story, and, and I kind of wrestle with what amazes or impresses Jesus more, 
the faithfulness of this Roman centurion who just, he's unwaveringly faithful. Like he has zero doubt in his mind that Jesus can do what he's asking him to do. And so I wonder, is it the faithfulness that amazed Jesus or is it the humble character that again, you would just not see in these kinds of people? Which one amazes or astonishes Jesus more? I I really don't know. I know that that humility is another theme that Luke highlights often, right? That, that humility is something where when Luke is talking about those who are aware of their humble state, when Jesus invites them to draw near, when Jesus invites them to follow him, they are well aware that they are undeserving. And they usually speak that in some way. And so I can't help but wonder if it is this Roman centurion's humility that really just stops Jesus in his tracks because his response, you, you caught Jesus' response, right? Not even in Israel. And just reminder, Israel equals God's chosen people, people who belong to God, people who follow God, who revere God. And Jesus is saying, I haven't even seen this kind of faith in Israel. He's saying, I haven't seen this kind of faith among the people of God. Notice he's not saying, I haven't seen any faith, right? It's not necessarily like direct condemnation, like they have no faith, but he has not seen a faith like this, even in Israel. And I guess, I don't know, you could say I'm a little little pessimistic, but I honestly am, am not surprised at this point because already, and I mentioned this last week, Luke has already highlighted that Jesus was driven out of Nazareth. That the moment that Jesus even implied that God's people should be doing more for outsiders, because that's what Jesus did. The day that he walked into the synagogue and began reading the fulfillment of scripture, essentially what he was saying is, you should have been doing more. And now here here am I to show you what you should have been doing all along. This ticked everyone off, and he was driven out, and so I'm not surprised, right? He's constantly raked over the coals and criticized and condemned by the religious leaders, and so I'm sorry, but I'm not surprised that here is this outsider who is much more open and humble before God than his own people. I couldn't help but mention Matthew's version of this story. And just kind of a, here's a freebie for you. When you read the Gospels, you notice that there are discrepancies, that the stories don't always match the others in other Gospels, right? And, and we don't consider this a bad thing or a sketchy, skeptical thing. We look at this as this was each author's version of what happened. They all saw and experienced it in a different way. Their vantage point does not match the other gospel writers. And so it's a good thing that those stories aren't told. They didn't get together and line up each and every detail of the story so that it was more believable, right? They each share their own own unique version of what happened. And it's important for us to know as we're reading and interacting with scripture that each gospel writer is reaching a different audience. So Luke, for instance, can you guess who his audience was? Mostly Gentiles, 
right? Luke's audience was mostly Gentiles, and so he's telling these stories in a way that will reach the Gentile people. He's not going to drop in a bunch of language that only Jewish people will understand because that means nothing to the Gentiles, whereas Matthew's gospel is directed toward a largely Jewish audience, and so Matthew's version of this story includes a, a piece of Jesus' response that Luke doesn't include because, again, Gentiles wouldn't understand, But we read this in Matthew chapter 8, and and we ought to consider Jesus' response. After he says, I haven't found such faith even among Israel, he says this, I say to you, many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' response in Luke shows his amazement as he notices the faith of an outsider. But Jesus' response in Matthew focuses on the faithlessness of Israel. It highlights that Israel, they're going to show up thinking, we did all the right things. We said all the right things. We checked all the right boxes. And here we are ready to receive our reward. But they're going to show up to the banquet table and find, wait a minute, who are all these people? Who invited these people and why are they at our banquet table? And then suddenly Jesus seems to say that they're not going to have a place at the table. But Jesus pulled up a chair for the outsiders who were willing to come to the table, who were willing to receive, who were willing to take him seriously and do what he said. They will be the ones celebrating the feast at the banquet table. And those who refuse to pull up a chair for the outsider and invite them to experience the goodness and grace of God, they seem to have no place at their table. You see why I think it's important that we look at the two? This is one of the many reasons, church, why I think, and I just feel a strong conviction that, that we ought to remain humble, constantly humble before the Lord. Because so often we think we're getting it all right, and we're doing everything right. We assume so often, without even holding it up next to the gospel, that we are on the right side of things. And yet, we are reminded in scripture time and time again how easy it can be for us to be missing everything. We're reminded that we can become so focused on the things that don't matter, the things that are not even in scripture, right? Our man-made traditions and our idols. We can become so fixated and focused on these things that we miss where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing and how he is bringing in the kingdom of God. So we have the faith of the centurion. We have Jesus' response. And now we open ourselves up to respond to this story. And as I was kind of thinking about that, as I was wondering, what is our response as we come to the end of this story? What are the questions that we need to ask ourselves? 
I know that there's got to be more, but I kept coming back to at least three different ways that this message might challenge us. And three different ways that this, that this passage might reach us, knowing that we're all different. We all come from different backgrounds. We're, we're all in different places in our journey. We're not all at the same place in our walk with the Lord. And so I tried to find ways that this might reach all of us. And so essentially, I have three questions for us this morning. The first one that kept coming to my mind over and over again, I read it in a commentary and it just stuck with me. Do we, the people of God, have the kind of faith that would amaze or astonish Jesus? I don't know that it necessarily surprises him, like like he didn't see it coming. But do we, the people of God, have the kind of faith that stops him in his tracks? That he would notice and respond with kind of this awe and this wonder and amazement? Another way that I could ask this question, is your faith, in other words, what you believe, what you preach, because by the way, you're all preaching a message with how you live your lives. I hope you know that. I'm not the only preacher in the room. I'm just the only one that's willing to get up here and do it in front of everybody. I'm just kidding. You're all preaching some kind of message. So is your faith what you believe, how you preach, and how you live? Is that humbly surrendered to Jesus following his cues always? Because Jesus looks at this Roman centurion, and I know that we don't read these words, but I really do think that he is essentially saying, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what it looks like to be a follower, one who who has this humble disposition that is open to how and when and where Jesus will be Jesus. And then we follow in those footsteps, recognizing that we don't have all the answers, that we don't always get it right, And yet we're wholeheartedly open to the movement of Jesus and the coming of his kingdom, fully humble and submitted to him. The centurion's response to Jesus and his humble faith completely amazed and astonished Jesus. And and again, thinking about a baby dedication, I I see in this, this big, what I picture to be a big, burly Roman centurion, like what I see is this childlike faith. And church, sometimes I wonder if we, if our faith in Jesus has become jaded and cynical, and we're so skeptical sometimes, whether Jesus can actually do what he says he wants and will do. Right? We've become so jaded that, that we don't approach him all the time with this childlike faith. And yet, that's what I see in this Roman centurion, and, and we see Jesus' response to that kind of faith. So the question, first question, do we have the kind of faith, church, that might astonish or amaze Jesus? The second question was inspired by a quote that I read from N.T. Wright this week. And he says this. He says, Here in this story is a humble Gentile looking in 
at Israel and Israel's God from the outside, and he likes what he sees, and he's opening himself to, he's opened himself to learning new truth from this strange, ancient way of life. So you, you probably know the second question that's coming, right? Church, when the world on the outside is looking in, peeking, peering in, what do they see? Sometimes when I'm on the outside looking in, when I just remove myself for a moment and look in, it's not good. It's not always good. When the world is on the outside looking in at the church, what is it that they see? Do they see a bunch of people that tend to be really critical of one another and everyone else? Do they see a bunch of people that just have critical spirits? Do they see Christians saying one thing, preaching one thing, and yet living a life that doesn't match these words? Do they see Christians talking about scripture and the gospel, and yet they live a life that doesn't support this gospel? Or do they see love, a humble, relentless love? Do they see open arms? Do they see hospitality? You're welcome here. We will bend over backwards to make a space for you here. Do they see people who are willing to get their hands dirty? Do they see people that are willing to walk through the messiness and ugliness of life and situations with other people, whether they are inside or not. And what I'm not talking about, church, I'm not talking about pleasing the world and living in a way that makes the world happy. That's not what I'm saying, because I'm very well aware that a lot of times the church, when we live according to the gospel, there are going to be people in the world who will not take kindly to that. They will not look favorably at the church, and they will criticize the church regardless. I'm not saying we please the world and make ourselves look appealing to them. But is it even the gospel or Jesus that they see? Because they are looking. I am I'm absolutely confident that the world is looking. What do they see? Do they see what kept coming to mind, Jesus' words for the Pharisees and other places in the Gospels? Do they see whitewashed tombs that do nothing but stand on certain issues? Or do they see humble people who are willing to walk with people? Church, if how we live doesn't match up with the Gospel that we ought to be reading and studying to know, to know better, if, they, if they, what they see doesn't match up with the gospel that we read, that's a problem. And we have become part of the problem. And not to get all preachy on you, but I think it's important that we remember the harsh words that Jesus would have when we show up to the banquet, ready to participate, because we did and said all the right things, We checked all the boxes, and yet we find that we don't have a place at the table. 
Finally, so that second question, when the world is looking in at the church, what do they see? And my final question this morning, assuming that there may be people in our midst who feel like outsiders, even if you look like everyone else and act like everyone else, maybe deep down inside, you yourself feel like an outsider. My question for you this morning is, do you know that you are welcome at Jesus' table? Do you really know? Do you know that Jesus sees you? He sees you. He looks at you with love and mercy and grace, and he invites you in. He invites you to trust him. He invites you to follow him wholeheartedly. He invites you to put your faith in him. And let me just challenge you this morning, because a lot of people are angry at the church. You know, I feel like I, I, I do my, my diligence to, to help the church to be aware of where we might be missing it, where we might be falling short. That's kind of in the job description at times. I love you, but we got to, and it's to, to me too. But can I just talk to the outsiders for a minute who might be listening I know that there's a lot of times where you're turned off by the church and you're mad at the church and the church has hurt you and that's kind of your reason. That's what keeps you from fully participating. Can I just invite you for a moment to take your eyes off of us because we're messy. We miss it. We fall short. Can I invite you to take your eyes off of us and put your eyes on Jesus? Look to him and him alone. Don't look to the lives around you, but place your faith. Don't put your faith in us. We ought to be doing what we're called to do. I'm going to continue to remind us of that. I'm not going to let us off the hook because we're human. Nope, we're going to do what Jesus calls and empowers us to do. But I want to remind you to not always look at us and see perfection. You're not always going to do that, but look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who invites you to get to know him. And he wants to transform your entire life from the inside out. You are welcome to this table. And so I'm going to invite the praise team to come back. And we're going to prepare to sing one of my favorite songs, The Goodness of God. And as we are going to sing in a moment, he is good. He is good, and he's called us to live a life that reflects his goodness. He calls us to live holy lives, lives that that revolve around loving and serving others because he has loved and served us. He's been good to us, and he calls us to share this goodness with the world. We can't do that until we recognize and receive the goodness of God ourselves first. The bottom line this morning, Jesus cares more, I'm convinced anyways, Jesus cares more about our humble faith and openness to him He's more concerned with our humble faith and openness to him than he is with the labels we like to wear, the boxes we like to check, or the things we pride ourselves on knowing. 
He wants us to have an open, humble faith that is placed solely in him. And that's the, that's the prayer of our hearts this morning. Amen? So God, we come before you. There is no agenda here. I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke and I'm truly just trying to to receive it as it is. And I'm challenged because so often our lives don't always reflect this loving service and humility. So often we are are skeptical, God, of your goodness. We're skeptical, God, of of the good things that you want to do. We're skeptical whether or not healing can actually take place or whether or not good change, holy change can come. God, I'm just challenged to open myself up to you and say, Here I am, God. Show me how I might be missing it. Show us, God, what it looks like to be your holy people. God, help us to have eyes to see the outsiders and the willingness to invite them in. God, would you help us to be a people who in the world looks in at us, they see love and mercy and grace and truth and forgiveness. Hopefully we are demonstrating that with one another here already so that the world will see that and they will want to participate in that holy goodness. God, would you just continue to guide and direct our hearts this morning? And we praise you, Heavenly Father, for being so good to us. When we don't deserve it, God, your goodness continues to chase us down. And we celebrate that and we praise you for that this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you can stand. I'm going to ask you guys to do something weird. I know what you're thinking. Have you guys ever noticed how, like, we sit in the back half of the building? Uh, Like, there's so much empty space up here. We're so far away. So here's what we're going to do. I just, we sit together in our family groups, but just for this one last song, I want us all to come together. If you guys can come forward, those who are able, one big family. Not our own little families. One big family. There's no outsiders. I even left the lights on so you guys can see. I know it's weird. Come on. Just do it. I want you guys to come up. There's lots of space up here. We're all going to come together and sing this song. We're singing another song that might be hard for some of us that maybe we don't feel, always feel all the things that we're singing. We can sing them by faith. We can let the Lord just sing over us and and ask him to meet us in the spaces of unbelief, in the spaces of doubt and struggle. God, 
We are so grateful for your goodness, and we just ask that you would reveal it to us this morning. Even those of us who have struggled to see it, we've been through really hard things in our lives, or we're going through hard things right now. So we just ask God that through your people and in this moment of worship, that you would reveal yourself and your goodness to us. All right, let's do what we're gonna sing. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me in all my days. I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up till I lay my This is right. 
kind of in favor of doing that every week. <laughs> I really appreciate that, Nikki, because I do think so often it's easy to come in this building, our own separate lives, doing our own separate things, not really knowing what's going on in the life of our neighbor who sits next to us. So I just thank you, Nikki, that you invited us to draw near to one another. And I just pray that we would continue to do that because we are a family. We are a community, a holy community. And we stick together through thick and through thin, the good times and hard times. You guys have been through a lot together. I'm still a newbie, and I'm still that, that, that weird outsider that you're just not really sure if you want to fully embrace me or not yet. And I know. But you guys have been through a lot, and, and the Lord is calling us to continue to invite others to join this community and experience the goodness of God. So God, I just thank you this morning. I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for this fellowship, for this community. God, I pray that we would be a people of love and grace and humility God, I pray that we would not just live our own isolated lives, but that we would come together and that we would leave this place in unity and in love so that the world, when they see us, that they would want to participate. God, I pray that you would continue to be with this community. God, would you continue? We give you permission, Lord. Mold us and shape us. God, help us to look more like you each and every day, never believing that we've arrived or that we've made it or that we've got it all figured out. But God, challenge us. Call us to new places. And God, we know that it's only through you, through your power, that you will move in a new and mighty way in our midst. And to God be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. You can either stand for a few more seconds or you can be seated. Because <laughs> we're going to go into some announcements. I left my iPad at my seat, so I'm going to kind of look at you guys <laughs> for the pictures. Thank you. All right, summer lunch program this Tuesday, as usual. Uh, one thing that I have failed to announce is that each year we, we do invite the congregation to give financially to support the summer lunch program because that doesn't come out of any particular budget uh, in, in the church budget. And so we always invite others to give to support that as we buy all the items needed for those lunches. We do anywhere between 50 and 75 lunches every single week. And so the school does provide some items, but the church also um, has some expense as well. So uh, if you haven't done that yet and you'd like to, you can give either here today or online and just mark your, your gift with summer lunch program, okay? And we'll make sure that that goes to the appropriate place. 
All right, next up, Lunch Bunch is meeting this Wednesday. Yep, that's this Wednesday, June 29th at noon at Eckert's. So all are invited. If you're able to come, you are invited to come and join the Lunch Bunch. It's a great bunch. And then finally, let's see, we have Restore's Back to School Bash. That's coming up in August, which may feel like a long ways away, but it's actually not. And we, they are needing volunteers, and so there's links uh, where you can go and sign up to, to volunteer and support, because we, re- we support Restore Network in other ways, not just with our giving, right? We recognize that we are called to support the hard, such hard work that they are doing, and so I want to challenge you and urge you to go and find a place to serve. If you give financially, that's awesome, but your next challenge is to go find a place to serve. Show up for Restore and help them out. Okay, all right, moving on. Is that it? I'm sorry. That, <laughs> that's all over the place this morning. My bad. All right, everyone, I invite you to stand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may you go in the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you go and once again remain open and humble before the Lord. May you be looking for the ways in which he's going to move in your midst, and may you be open to the ways that he's inviting you to participate. Look for the outsiders. Look for those who are lonely and alone and invite them in. Go in his grace and power and peace. You are dismissed. Have a great day.